You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point, what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For... Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it, has, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, There would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Thank you for your holy word, which testifies and holds forth Christ in its every page. Father, I pray we wouldn't miss Christ, the greatest, for lesser but good things, that we wouldn't be distracted by your word, as we use it in an ungodly way, to look at anything with higher reverence and regard and anticipation and longing than Christ, that we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't miss the sum and substance of what it all is about for something else. And in so doing, may we cherish Christ covenantally. May we read your word that way. Teach us now something of our great high priest and the covenant by which we draw near to you. Send your spirit, Father. We are inadequate for this in ourselves. In Christ's name we plead this, amen. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul, specifically addressing Gentile Christians, 
says to them, you were at one time strangers to the covenants of promise. You were. And it's been my hope and longing that the covenants of promise no longer be strange to you who are no longer strangers to them in Christ. You once were, but now in Christ you are not. That's been my hope through this series, but now we've come to the place where we're no longer staring at the covenants of promise. We're looking now at the promised covenant. A new covenant. The new covenant. The covenants of old held forth this promised new covenant. They were not themselves administrations of the new covenant, but they ministered the new covenant in promise and shadow and type. Even the old covenant held forth this promise saying in Deuteronomy 36, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And in that chapter, Deuteronomy 30, God said He would do this after Israel forgot covenant. He's telling them, once you forget covenant, I will remember covenant. He's saying, as it were, that When the bride proves unfaithful and breaks covenant, he will promise covenant anew. And one of the clearest places where this happens is once Israel actually has broken covenant and suffered the consequences thereof, we have one of the clearest pronouncements of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, which is quoted here. The longest single quotation of any Old Testament passage given here, Jeremiah 31. Now we are gazing, though, not on the new as promised, but the new as fulfilled as we look at Jeremiah 31 in this passage. We're not looking at the new as promised in the old, but the old as fulfilled in the new. And so naturally, we're looking to the New Testament to see this. If, if you want to see the new covenant in fulfillment, you would turn then to the New Testament. Testament being an unfortunate translation of the Latin testamentum. But the idea is covenant. So we're looking at the new covenant in the new covenant, the New Testament. And as we do so, you might be shocked to discover that any explicit mention of the new covenant actually quite rare in the New Covenant. We'll see it mentioned in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also in 1 Corinthians, all in regards to the supper, the cup of the New Covenant, or the blood of the New Covenant. Paul ever so lightly touches upon it in Romans eleven seventeen. 2 Corinthians 3, we see Paul's fullest treatment, but it's not an intense or exhaustive treatment at all. Until we turn to Hebrews, and particularly Hebrews 8 through 10, then covenant language erupts. It's all over the place. Now, Hebrews is a glorious letter with this one central theme the superiority of Christ. Jesus is better. And the author of this letter alludes and quotes the Old Testament again and again and again to demonstrate this. And so the author demonstrates that Jesus is better, not than false, bad, and ugly things. Jesus is better than true, good, and beautiful things. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the temple, than the tabernacle, than the priest and and the sacrifices. He's better than the Sabbath. The writer is telling us in this letter that Jesus is better than the best things that were in the world. 
the things that he gave his people in revelation and redemption, all of them, Jesus is better than all of them because all of them testify to him, speaking to him. Hebrews uses the old to speak to the new again and again and show us that the new is better. And the author of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew Christians who are in danger from persecution and pressures outside. They're in danger of turning back. They're in danger of turning back from the risen sun to the shadows which testified of him. And so the reason why he's setting forth the superiority of Christ is so that they will have assurance and they'll have confidence and thus hold fast to Christ. So the point of Hebrews is Jesus is better, but Jesus is better so that you don't let go. Hold fast. Don't let go. Don't let go of Jesus even for a good thing because Jesus is a better thing, the best thing. Hold on. To let go of Jesus for a good thing is to trade a superior good for an inferior good. And so as Hebrews is doing this, alongside that, Hebrews teaches you how to read your Old Testament. If you want to learn how to read the Old Testament, to see Christ in the Old Testament, there are some who might lay down some kind of strict rules. I think while that's helpful, the better method is to just do an in-depth study of Hebrews so that you catch the way that the author reads the Old Testament and you begin to bring that same kind of, of spirit to the Old Testament as you read it. As you're reading through Hebrews, you see as Gold, Graham Goldsworthy put it that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the hermeneutical key. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpreting a text. Jesus is the hermeneutical key to the Old Testament. The true, the, 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 the true depths and wonder and glories of the Old Testament are, as it were, written with invisible ink that you can only read in the light of the risen sun. What we see is that the old speaks to the new, the new... The old is then best understood in light of the new. And so if you leave the new for the old, you failed to see what the old was all about. And so, as we'll see, Hebrews 8 through 10 teaches us that if we're to read the Bible with Jesus as the hermeneutical key, what this means is we must read the Bible covenantally. And the centrality of Christ in all of this is, is put forward just at the very opening of chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. The point, the point, the author has introduced the high priesthood of Christ in chapter 2 and verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The priesthood of Christ is mentioned again in chapter 3 and verse 1, chapter 4 and verse 11. Chapter 5 and verse 11, the author begins to write more extensively in chapter 5 on the theme of the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. And he comes to this point in 5.11 saying about this, the Melchizedekian order of Christ, priesthood, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. There's much to say about the priesthood of Christ. And then he gives this rebuke. And following that rebuke, there's an aside where he deals with the danger of turning away, of apostasy. And then he resumes the theme of Christ's priesthood at the end of chapter 6. Gives it extensive treatment in chapters 7 through 10. And so chapters 7 through 10 are the heart of this letter. They are the central focus. They are the point. The point in what we are saying. So everything that Paul has been communicating, he now wants to say, 
this is the point of all of that. When he says, this is the point, it's not the point of a limited line of argumentation. This is not the point of a few sentences or a few paragraphs. This is the point of the letter. Robert Murray McShane preached from this verse saying, this is the sum of the epistle to the Hebrews. This is the chief object of the Bible to show you the work, the beauty, the glory, the excellency of this high priest. Search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me, John 5, 39. So he says, this is the sum of the epistle to the Hebrews. He goes on, this is the sum of all our preaching. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. Brethren, he says, this is the sum of your belief. This is the precious cornerstone. It is good to know other things, but the main thing is to know that we have such an high priest who is set, at the, on, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Don't miss the point of the Bible, especially when the Bible tells you this is the point. We have such a high priest. What kind of such is such, though? We have such a high priest. Well, we need to look back first to what Paul has been saying, the point in what we are saying. So Paul is, has said something, and now this is the, the summation of it. And so we go back to chapter 7, verse 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind of such is such? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the way that this began in Hebrews 7.26 throws you back further. For, so this is a conclusion again. We have such a high priest. This takes you back to verses 11 through 25. And all those earlier mentions of the priesthood of Christ throughout this letter. What the writers most recently struggled to establish when he says 4 in verse 26 of chapter 7. Is that the priesthood of our high priest is after the order of Melchizedek. The superior order of Melchizedek. And thus this makes him, 7 and verse 22, the guarantor of a better covenant. And we don't have time to dwell on Melchizedek. And we'll unpack how this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant in depth in just a minute. But for now, I just want you to see that when he says we have such a high priest... He's wanting to say, we have a superior high priest. Verse 11 of chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So this is how the author has demonstrated the superiority of Christ and His priesthood. He's telling us we have such a high priest. You see why this is a reason you wouldn't want to turn back from the best Christ to something that's good, the ironic, because Christ is better. So this is how the author has demonstrated it. Here is how he then goes on to sum it up here. Two parallel statements. We have such a high priest. First, our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Second, our high priest is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Let's quickly note three things before we move on to the grounds that the author 
puts forward to support this statement. First, our high priest is seated. In chapter 10 and verse 11, the author will say that other priests stand daily working. Our high priest is seated. His work is complete, finished, perfect. Second, our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. If you have any doubt about the quality of Christ's work, if you think maybe he's sitting because he's exhausted or because he gave up or because the work was so difficult and he needed rest, no, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. But not only does this speak to the quality of his work, it testifies to the completeness and the perfection of his work. His being seated at the right hand of the throne speaks to the kingly nature of his priesthood. His is a kingly priesthood. He is a kingly priest. Indeed, what he rules is his priesthood. As the Christ, he ruled eternally over all things. But as the Christ, as our anointed priest, he rules redemptively. The king rules his priesthood. Third, our high priest is a minister in the holy places, the true tent. This is not true in contrast to what is false. It's the idea of original in contrast to a copy or shadow to the substance or archetype to the type. And the significance of these things will be brought out as we move along, begin to be brought out as we consider the grounds that he offers for why this is so. Verse 3, 4, we have such a high priest... One who's seated, one who ministers in the heavenly places, for every high priest, two assertions, two grounds for that statement. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for that, this high priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So first... Priests offer gifts and sacrifices. This is what they do. This is their ministry. So when we read in verse 2, a minister in the holy places, the ministry of a priest is offering up gifts and sacrifices. Whenever we read in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a better ministry. This is a priestly ministry. And what priestly ministry involves is offerings and sacrifices. This is already asserted in chapter 5 and verse 1. Every high priest is chosen from among men, every high priest chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is what priests are appointed to do. So what then does Christ offer up? He's already told you in chapter 7, verse 27. He offers up himself. The priest is the sacrifice. But even though he's already stated that in chapter 7, the way chapter 8 is unfolding, you are expecting him to come back to this and tell you what our high priest offers up, to give a contrast and establish why our high priest is greater than those high priests. Why, he's superior. Second, grounds for saying we have such a high priest is that if our high priest were on earth, he would not be a high priest. If he were earthly, he would not be a high priest. And the reason is, priests are descended from Levi. Specifically Aaron. This is outlined in the law. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Chapter 7, the writer makes it plain that Jesus is not a priest after the Levitical order because he's born 
of the tribe of Judah. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. These earthly priests are serving a copy, a shadow of heavenly realities. And then Exodus 25 is quoted, See that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Exodus 25 and verse 40. Now, with these two points laid out, what is the conclusion that you're expecting the writer to bring forward now? What is the contrast you're expecting him to present? First, you're expecting him to tell you how what our high priest offers up is better. And then second, you're expecting him to tell you of your high priest heavenly ministry, not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. You have set before you the Levitical priesthood, verse 4. It's earthly ministry with a tent that men have set up and its offerings. And so you're expecting him to unfold on the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is heavenly, set up by God and its offerings. But the author has already and will elucidate further on these things. But first, rather than drawing out what we're expecting, to set up the contrast, first, he puts before us not not their offerings and his offerings, not their sphere of work, earth, and his sphere of work, heavenly, but first, covenant, verse 9. Excuse me, verse 6. But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So the first thing in establishing this line of argument that Jesus is superior, the first grounds he offers is the covenant that is established and under which his priesthood is exercised. The grounds of the superior priestly ministry of our Lord is the superior covenant His priesthood establishes and is a part of. Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry than theirs as the better covenant He mediates is enacted on better promises. Priesthoods are covenantal. They exist under covenant. A superior covenant means a superior priesthood. And the reason the new covenant is superior is because it's enacted on better promises. And now, the author provides grounds for that assertion. Better promises. How is the new superior? What what proof do we have? And again, he appeals to the old to establish the superiority of the new. Verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You don't look for a second if the first is perfect. If the first takes care of everything, there's no need for a second. The promise of a second covenant speaks to the limitations of the first. There is a, verse 7 and 8, there is a fault in the first covenant. And to demonstrate this fault... This is when the author quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Their God promises a covenant that is not like the old. He finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There are some, our dear Presbyterian brothers, who would argue that the new covenant, that the making of the new covenant is actually a renewal of all the covenants of old. It's a renewal. As, and, and the way they speak of this is that all those old covenants were themselves administrations of the covenant of grace. And so can you see why if the old covenant... If the Abrahamic covenant is an administration itself of the covenant of grace, can you see where they get from circumcising children 
to baptizing children. And so they'll argue that that the new covenant is a renewal. And while I will say that all the covenants of old are, they're not administrations of the covenant of grace, they minister the covenant of grace in shadow, type, and promise. Whenever we get here, what we see is the newness of the new covenant. It is not like the old. It is a new covenant. And the reason for this new covenant, what gives rise to it, is this fault. And notice the way that the fault is spoken of in verse 8. The fault is with them. The fault is with them. This is elaborated on in verse 9. For they did not, they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares Yahweh. Or as he put it this way earlier, Jeremiah did in in chapter 3 of Jeremiah, he sent her away with a decree of divorce, the covenant annulled. See, the problem, though, is not that the old covenant was bad. The problem is that men were bad. The covenant was good. The old, though, did not deal with the badness directly. It exposed the badness. But it itself did not deal with the badness. It only held forth in promise, shadow, and type that which was to deal with the badness. Al Mohler explains the old covenant wasn't without fault. Its faultiness was not like a machine in need of repair though. Its faultiness was rooted in its incompleteness. The old covenant was faulty because it was not final. If it were the final covenant, there would have been no need for a better covenant. So then how is this new covenant superior, better than the old? And using Jeremiah, three things are put forward. And they are the better promises spoken of in verse 6. It is enacted on better promises. What are these better promises? Three ways that the new is superior to the old. The new covenant works internally. It assures intimacy. And it forgives iniquity. It works internally. Assures intimacy. And forgives iniquity. First, it it works internally. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. In the old covenant, it was external to them and written on a tablet of stone. In the new, it's written on the tablet of their hearts. In the old covenant, this law was given externally to a nation, a people. Now it's giving to persons that there is a there's a corporate nature to the church but it's it's directly dealing with the persons themselves not with the person simply as part of a people there were persons who were part of the old covenant they'd received the sign of the old covenant but they were not in any way part of the new covenant anticipated therein as Paul says in Romans 2.29, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So the true Jew looked to the old covenant and placed their faith in the shadows and the types and the promises therein and thereby they knew the reality of the new covenant by its promise. In the new though, every member Not just part of the covenant community, but every person who is in the covenant community of God, the church, the true Israel. In the new covenant, every one of them enjoys heart circumcision, regeneration, the new birth. They're a new creation. And that this is so, it's clear in the second promise. The new covenant assures intimacy, verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
Every one of them. In the Old Covenant, there were people who were in covenant relationship with God who were not in covenant relationship with God. They were part of a nation to which God had made a covenant with them as His people. But regarding them as an individual, they had no part in knowing God. This comes only by the new covenant, promised or fulfilled. But here this internal work means intimacy with God. He is their God. They are His people. There is union and communion with God. Each and every one of them enjoy this. From the least of them to the greatest, all of them know. And this is why we as Baptists insist on regenerate church membership. Because it's only persons who know God in this way that are part of His church, part of His body, His fellowship. So yes, in the church we have false professors. Just as there were false professors in ancient Israel. Yes, we have false professors. But they were never true possessors. They were never really truly part of the community of God, of His church. They were never part. They went out from us, John says, because they were never really among us. They were never part of His blood-bought bride who knew Him. They were never part of the invisible and universal church as God sees it. They never had any part in the new covenant. See, they don't have a part in the new covenant. But in the old, false professors could have part in the old covenant. That can't happen in the new. All know Him from the least to the greatest. Third, the reason the intimacy can be The grounds for this knowledge is that iniquities are forgiven. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. So with this, do you see how considering covenant first, before he speaks of the superior offering of Christ and the superior ministry in the heavenly realm, before he delves into that, establishing everything on the basis of covenant helps you to rightly think of that offering. Because when Christ offered up Himself to deal with our sins, that is the grounds of our forgiveness. And that forgiveness is the reason that we can know God and the Spirit can work internally so that we know God, writing His law on our hearts. And all of that part of the better promises that are enacted under the better covenant. So, the new is demonstrably better than the old. And the author demonstrates this using the old itself to tell us that the new is better. This is the point of the old. This is the purpose of the old. To hold forth the new and promise. But now that promise has come to fulfillment. And since it has come to fulfillment, it would be folly to turn back to the good, letting go of the better. One pastor helpfully speaks of there being two kinds of better. There's going from something good to something that is better and going from something bad to something that is better. So there are two kinds of better. And here it's clearly the former, going from something good to something that's better. That's clearly what's happening. But this, this good... The better is so much better that it would be bad to go back to the good from the better. It would be sin to go back from the better towards what was good. Because the good is meant to throw you towards the better. And so you sin not simply against the new, you sin against the old if you go back from the, good, the, the new to the old. This isn't like occasionally enjoying a jerky stick, even though you've matured and come to realize steak is better. This is like a wife whose husband has been deployed overseas. And she's received letters and photographs. Letters and photographs with promises. 
of renewed intimacy and joy once he returns. But then once he returns, she's made such an idol out of the image she's constructed from these letters and photographs that she loves and holds on to those things even though her husband has returned. That's why the letter of this the writer of this letter is zealous to show them Jesus is better so that they would cling and hold fast and be assured of all that is theirs in Him. And being assured of that, there would be no way they would ever want to let go of Him for something inferior. As we draw our study of the covenants to a close, that does not mean conclusion here. Don't fold it up yet. As we draw our study of the covenants to a close, I want us to revisit those two questions that were prompted in our minds earlier, that we left hanging and see the author's answer to them. So we can now behold it as he's labored. We can behold it more clearly as we think of them covenantally. We behold them in light of covenant. So those two questions that were brought forward in our minds as the author is trying to establish that we have such a high priest And the grounds for his superiority are two. First, priests offered gifts and sacrifices. Second, our priest could not have been an earthly priest. And so we ask, what sacrifice does our high priest offer up? And second, where does he offer it? And so look with me to Hebrews 9 and see how the contrast that we're expecting is drawn out there. And how he frames it all in terms of covenant. You had these two questions. What does ours offer up? Where does he offer it? He starts talking about covenant. Why are you talking about covenant? And now that he's answering those two questions, it's all in regards to covenant. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. The writer presents again in greater detail the priestly ministry under the first covenant. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For the tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded Aaron, priestly Aaron, And the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Cherubim, angelic creatures surrounding the throne of God. Above the mercy seat, the throne of God. Remember God saying you shall make everything according to the pattern show you on the mountain. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. No assurance. He's wanting to have confidence and assurance. And he's saying, if you want that, you cannot have it in the old. These only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But, This is the contrast you were expecting earlier. Now he's getting to it. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. He offers up His blood, His own life as a perfect and holy sacrifice in our stead. And He brings this sacrifice. This is where His ministry is done. He brings it before the very throne of God Himself in heaven. Don't think, if if you're thinking in fleshly pictures here, you're missing the point. The point is not earthly, but heavenly, spiritual. Because of this, our sins are forgiven and we may now approach the throne of God with confidence. He goes on to tell us in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have, been, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. He is God. We are His people. We know Him. We are known by Him. This, blessed saints, is what covenant means. Union and communion with God. And all the other covenants were covenants of promise. And what they were promising basically was covenant. All the other covenants were promising covenant. Real, true, everlasting, deep covenant so that you know God and are known of God. And this has come to fulfillment in Christ. This covenant, this Blessed covenant was established, or to use the proper language of the Old Testament, this covenant was cut. It had been promised before. Those old covenants were not an administration of the covenant of promise. They were uh, the, the promised covenant. They ministered the promised covenant because whenever the covenant was cut, when it was established, was when Christ shed His blood for our sins. There the covenant was cut. Look to what the covenant cost. Look to what the covenant purchased. Don't let go of it for anything. Hold fast. Cling to Christ. Draw near. Know your God covenantally. How? Read His holy word and read it covenantally. Read it this way. Read of all the covenants of promise. And know that everything that's held forth there in promise, you are no longer strangers to in Christ because everything that that was promised has come to its fullness in Him and the new covenant. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ and are thus strangers to none of these things. So I leave you with where we began this series, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore... Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray.
Holy Father, help us to more clearly, truly, deeply, profoundly understand the covenant relationship that we have with you in Christ. In the fullness of all the scriptures as they speak to it and the covenants of promise of old come to bloom in Him. That we would no longer be strangers to what we are no longer estranged from because of Christ drawing us near. That we would know something of the greatness of your salvation. Of what it means to know you and be known by you. That we would know something of of the weightiness and gravity of the law as it lied outside man and now has been written on our hearts as you've circumcised them, made them new. That we would understand something of the nature of the church as your people, people who have been redeemed and regenerated, who know you. And thus we would be zealous to guard the purity of the church for the glory of your name because of the redemption you've accomplished in Christ and and redeeming a a people with with your law written on their heart, a, a people striving towards holiness, testifying to you and your redemption. Father, we ask all of this for the glory of the name of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.